0: Chapter eighteen, part nine of Volume two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter eighteen The Kingship in France, part nine it was after the purchase of the crown of thorns and the building of the holy chapel that louis accomplishing at last the desire of his soul departed on his first crusade we have already gone over the circumstances connected with his determination his departure and his life in the east during the six years of pious adventure and glorious disaster he passed there we have already seen what an impression of admiration and respect was produced throughout his kingdom when he was noticed to have brought back with him from the holy land a fashion of living and doing superior to his former behaviour although in his youth he had always been good and innocent and worthy of high esteem these expressions of his confessor are fully borne out by deeds and laws the administration at home and the relations abroad by the whole government in fact of st louis during the last fifteen years of his reign the idea which was invariably conspicuous and constantly maintained during his reign was not that of a premeditated and ambitious policy ever tending towards an interested object which is pursued with more or less reasonableness and success, and always with a large amount of trickery and violence on the part of the prince, of unrighteousness in his deeds, and of suffering on the part of the people. Philip Augustus, the grandfather, and Philip the handsome, the grandson of St. Louis, the former with the moderation of an able man, the latter with the headiness and disregard of right or wrong, labored both of them without cessation to extend the domains and power of the crown, to gain conquests over their neighbors and their vassals, and to destroy the social system of their age, the feudal system, its rights as well as its wrongs and tyrannies, in order to put in its place pure monarchy, and to exalt the kingly authority above all liberties, whether of the aristocracy or of the people. St. Louis neither thought of nor attempted anything of the kind. He did not make war, at one time openly, at another secretly, upon the feudal system, he frankly accepted its principles, as he found them prevailing in the facts and ideas of his time. Whilst fully bent on repressing with firmness his vassals' attempts to shake themselves free from their duties towards him, and to render themselves independent of the crown, he respected their rights, kept his word to them scrupulously, and required of them nothing but what they really owed him. Into his relations with foreign sovereigns, his neighbors, he imported the same loyal spirit, Certain of his counsel used to tell him, reports Joinville, that he did not well in leaving those foreigners to their warfare, for if he gave them his good leave to impoverish one another, they would not attack him so readily as if they were rich. To that the king replied that they said not well, for, quoth he, if the neighboring princes perceived that I left them to their warfare, they might make counsel amongst themselves, and say, "'It is through malice that the king leaves us through our warfare,' then it might happen that by cause of the hatred they would have against me, they would come and attack me, and I might be a great loser thereby. Without reckoning that I should thereby earn the hatred of God, who says, blessed be the peacemakers, so well established was his renown as a sincere friend of peace, and a just arbiter in great disputes between princes and peoples, that his intervention and his decisions were invited wherever obscure and dangerous questions arose." In spite of the brilliant victories which, in 1212, he had gained at Talborg and Saint over Henry III, King of England, he himself perceived, on his return from the East, that the conquests won by his victories might at any moment become a fresh cause of new and grievous wars, disastrous probably for one or the other of the two peoples. He conceived, therefore, the design of giving to a peace which was so desirable a more secure basis by founding it upon transaction accepted on both sides as equitable and thus, while restoring to the king of England certain possessions which the war of 1242 had lost to him, he succeeded in obtaining from him in return, as well in his own name as in the names of his sons and their heirs, a formal renunciation of all rights that he could pretend to over the duchy of Normandy, the countships of Anjou, Maine, Touraine, Poitou, and generally, all that his family might have possessed on the continent, except only the lands which the king of France restored to him by the treaty and those which remained to him in Gascony. For all these last the King of England undertook to do liege homage to the King of France, in the capacity of full peer of France and Duke of Aquitaine, and to faithfully fulfill the duties attached to the fief. When Louis made known this transaction to his counsellors, they were very much against it, says Joinville. It seemeth to us, sir, said they to the King, that if you think you have not a right to the conquest won by you and your ancestors from the King of England, you do not make proper restitution to the said king in not restoring to him the whole. And if you think you have a right to it, it seemeth to us that you are a loser by all you restore. Sirs, answered Louis, I am certain that the antecessors of the king of England did quite justly lose the conquest which I hold. And as for the land I give him, I give it him not as a matter in which I am bound to him or his heirs, but to make love between my children and his, who are cousins German." And it seemeth to me that what I give him I turn to good purpose, inasmuch as he was not my liegeman, and he hereby cometh in amongst my liegemen. Henry the Third, in fact, went to Paris, having with him the ratification of the treaty, and prepared to accomplish the ceremony of homage. Louis received him as a brother, but without sparing him aught of the ceremony, in which, according to the ideas of the times, there was nothing humiliating any more than in the name of Vassal, which was proudly borne by the greatest lords. It took place on Thursday, December 4th, 1259, in the royal enclosure stretching in front of the palace, on the spot where, at the present day, is the Place Dauphine. There was a great concourse of prelates, barons, and other personages belonging to the two courts and the two nations. The King of England, on his knees, bareheaded, without cloak, belt, sword, or spurs, placed his folded hands in those of the King of France, his suzerain, and said to him, Sir... I become your liege-man with mouth and hands, and I swear to promise you faith and loyalty, and to guard your right according to my power, and to do fair justice at your summons or the summons at your bailiff, to the best of my wit. Then the king kissed him on the mouth and raised him up. Three years later, Louis gave not only to the king of England, but to the whole English nation, a striking proof of his judicious and true-hearted equity. An obstinate civil war was raging between Henry the third and his barons. Neither party, in defending its own rights, had any notion of respecting the rights of his adversaries, and England was alternating between a kingly and an aristocratic tyranny. Louis, chosen as arbiter by both sides, delivered solemnly on the 23rd of January 1264, a decision which was favorable to the English kingship, but at the same time expressly upheld the great charter and the traditional liberties of England. He concluded his decision with the following suggestions of amnesty we will also that the king of england and his barons do forgive one another mutually that they do forget all the resentments that may exist between them by consequence of the matters submitted to our arbitration and that henceforth they do refrain reciprocally from an offence and injury on account of the same matters but when men have had their ideas passions and interests profoundly agitated and made to clash the wisest decisions and the most honest counsels in the world are not sufficient to re-establish peace the cup of experience has to be drunk to the dregs, and the parties are not resigned to peace until one or the other, or both, have exhausted themselves in the struggle, and perceive the absolute necessity of accepting either defeat or compromise. In spite of the arbitration of the king of France, the civil war continued in England, but Louis did not seek any way to profit by it so as to extend, at the expense of his neighbors, his own possessions or power he held himself also from their quarrels, and followed up by honest neutrality in effectual arbitration. Five centuries afterwards, the great English historian, Hume, rendered him due homage in these terms. Every time this virtuous prince interfered in the affairs of England, it was invariably with the view of settling differences between the king and the nobility. Adopting an admirable course of conduct, as politic, probably, as it certainly was just, He never interposed his good offices save to put an end to the disagreements of the English. He seconded all the measures which could give security to both parties, and he made persistent efforts, though without success, to moderate the fiery ambition of the Earl of Leicester. Hume, History of England, page 465. It requires more than political wisdom, more even than virtue, to enable a king, a man having in charge the government of men, to accomplish his mission, and to really deserve the title of most Christian. It requires that he should be animated by a sentiment of affection, and that he should, in heart as well as mind, be in sympathy with those multitudes of creatures over whose lot he exercises so much influence. St. Louis, more perhaps than any other king, was possessed of this generous and humane quality. Spontaneously, and by the free impulse of his nature, he loved his people, loved mankind, and took a tender and comprehensive interest in their fortunes, their joys, or their miseries. Being seriously ill in 1259, and desiring to give his eldest son, Prince Louis, whom he lost in the following year, his last and most heartfelt charge, Fair son, said he, I pray thee make thyself beloved of the people of thy kingdom, for verily I would rather a Scot should come from Scotland and govern our people well and loyally than have thee govern it ill to watch over the position and interests of all the parties in his dominions, and to secure to all his subjects strict and prompt justice, this was what continually occupied the mind of Louis the Ninth. There are to be found in his biography two very different but equally striking proofs of his solicitude in this respect. M. Félix Farr has drawn up a table of all the journeys made by Louis in France, from 1254 to 1270, for the better cognizance of matters requiring his attention and another of the parliaments which he held, during the same period, for considering the general affairs of the kingdom and the administration of justice. Not one of these sixteen years passed without his visiting several of his provinces, and the year 1270 was the only one in which he did not hold a parliament. Histoire de Saint-Louis by M. Félix Far page 120 and 339. Side by side, with this arithmetical proof of his active benevolence, we will place a moral proof taken from Joinville's often quoted account of St. Louis's familiar intervention in his subjects' disputes about matters of private interest. Many a time, says he, it happened in summer that the king went and sat down in the wood of Vincennes after mass, and leaned against an oak, and made us sit down round about him. And all those who had business came to speak to him without restraint of Usher or other folk. And then he demanded of them with his own mouth, Is there any here who hath a suit? And they who had their suit rose up, and then he said, Keep silence, all of ye, and ye shall have dispatch one after the other. And then he called my lord Peter de Fontaine and my lord Geoffrey de Villiers, two learned lawyers of the day and counsellors of St. Louis, and said to one of them, Dispatch me this suit. And when he saw aught to amend in the words of those who were speaking for another, he himself amended it with his own mouth. I sometimes saw in summer that, to dispatch his people's business, he went to the Paris garden, clad in camlet coat and linsey surcoat without sleeves, a mantle of black taffety round his neck, hair right well combed and without coif, and on his head a hat with white peacock's plumes. And he had carpets laid for us to sit round about him. And all the people who had business before him set themselves standing around him, and then he had their business dispatched in the manner I told you of before as to the wood of Vincennes.' JOINVILLE CHAPTER Twelve. The act of benevolence of Saint-Louis was not confined to this paternal care for the private interests of such subjects as approached his person. He was equally attentive and zealous in the case of measures called for by the social condition of the times and the general interest of the kingdom. Amongst the twenty-six government ordinances, edicts, or letters, contained under the date of his reign in the first volume of the Recul des Ordonnances des Rois de France, seven, at the least, are great acts of legislation and administration of a public kind. And these acts are all of such a stamp as to show that their main object is not to extend the power of the crown, or subserve the special interests of the kingship, at strife with other social forces. They are real reforms, of public and moral interest, directed against the violence, disturbances, and abuses of the feudal system. Many other of St. Louis's legislative and administrative acts have been published, either in subsequent volumes of the Recueil des Ordonnances de War, or in similar collections, and the learned have drawn attention to a great number of them still remaining unpublished in various archives. As for the large collection of legislative enactments, known by the name of Etalissement de Saint-Louis, it is probably a lawyer's work, posterior in great part at least to his reign, full of incoherent and even contradictory enactments, and without any claim to be considered as a general code of the law of Saint-Louis' date, and collected by his order although the paragraph which serves as a preface to the work is given under his name, and as if it had been dictated by him. Another act, known by the name of the pragmatic sanction, has likewise got placed, with the date of March 1268, in the Recueil des Ordonnances des Rois de France, as having originated with Saint-Louis. Its object is, first of all, to secure the rights, liberties, and canonical rules, internally, of the Church of France, and next to interdict the exactions and very heavy money-charges which have been imposed or may hereafter be imposed on the said church by the court of rome and by which our kingdom hath been miserably impoverished unless they take place for reasonable pious and very urgent cause through inevitable necessity and with our spontaneous and express consent and that of the church of our kingdom the authenticity of this act vigorously maintained in the seventh century by in his Défense de la Déclaration du Clergé de France de 1682, chapter 9, page 26, and in our time, by M. Danault, in the Histoire littéraire de la France, continué par les Ambres de l'Institut, page 75, and page 169, has been and still is rendered doubtful for strong reasons, which M. Félix Farr, in his Histoire de Saint-Louis, page 271, has summed up with great clearness. There is no design of entering here upon an examination of this little historical problem, but it is bound in duty to point out that, if the authenticity of the pragmatic sanction, as saint Louis is questionable, the act has, at bottom, nothing but what bears a very strong resemblance to, and is quite in conformity with, the general conduct of that prince, he was profoundly respectful, affectionate, and faithful towards the papacy, but at the same time very careful in upholding both the independence of the crown in things temporal, and its right of superintendence in things spiritual. Attention has been drawn to his posture of reserve during the great quarrel between the priesthood and the empire, and his firmness in withstanding the violent measures adopted by Gregory the Ninth and Innocent the Fourth against the Emperor Frederick the Second. Louis carried his notions as to the independence of his judgment and authority very far beyond the cases in which that policy went hand in hand with interest and even into purely religious questions. The bishop of Auxerre said to him one day, in the name of several prelates, Sir, these lords which be here, archbishops and bishops, have told me to tell you that Christianity is perishing in your hands. The king crossed himself and said, Well, tell me how that is made out. Sir, said the bishop, it is because nowadays so little notice taken of excommunications that folk let death overtake them excommunicate without getting absolution and have no mind to make atonement to the church these lords therefore do pray you sir for the love of god and because you ought to do so to command your provosts and bailiffs that all those who shall remain a year and a day excommunicated be forced by seizure of their goods to get themselves absolved whereto the king made answer that he would willingly command this in respect of the excommunicate touching whom certain proofs should be given him that they were in the wrong the bishop said that the prelates would not have this at any price and that they disputed the king's right of jurisdiction in their causes and the king said that he would not do it else for it would be contrary to god and reason if he should force folks to get absolution when the clergy had done them wrong as to that said the king i will give you the example of the count of brittany who for seven years, being fully excommunicate, was at pleas with the prelates of Brittany, and he prevailed so far that the Pope condemned them all. If, then, I had forced the count of Brittany, the first year, to get absolution, I should have sinned against God and against him. Then the prelates gave up, and never since that time have I heard that a single demand was made touching the matters above spoken of. End of chapter 18, part 9